Solomon, in essence, reigns, I mean, it's going to be, you know, give or take a, a year or two on this side or that side, but roughly 971 and 931 B.C. He reigns for 40 years. Uh, that is now on the near side of a millennia before Jesus. Uh, therefore, that third year when he went to take up the, uh, the building of the temple, that was 966, took him seven years. The temple was finished then in 959 B.C., the temple took, uh, it finished in the eighth month. We really dedicates in the seventh month. And then obviously it's not of the same year. At least it seems that way. And we'll see why in a moment. And so then I have to start doing some math. And I realize if Solomon took three years before he sort of began, then he took seven years to finish it. That means he was 10 years into the 40 years. Are you with me so far? Then it tells us that it took him 13 years to build his own house. And what we'll find, by the way, by the, the time we actually get to um, later on in the chapter, we're going to find that he did them in succession. In other words, he built the Lord's house, then he built his own house. So we went from 10 years now to 23 years. He is more than well past halfway mark of his reign, for what it's worth. But nonetheless, he does, and he builds the temple. And, and, and again, if it seems to be the way it looks, it's as if he built the temple but didn't dedicate it yet nor built, put the ark in. And it's arguable, but it appears to be that way in our texts. That means he waited 13 years to do this. That's crazy. Now he's gathered the elders, the tribal heads, the chief fathers. The ark is brought into the temple. The cloud of the glory of God's glory fills the house of the Lord. The priests couldn't continue ministering because of that. And then he begins to speak first to the Lord. God, in essence, God, you said that um, that David's son would build him a house. I'm David's son. Just like you said, the house is built. Just like you said, wow, you keep your word. I like that. And you said that if we heeded and walked according to the way you commanded, we would rule interrupted as a family. So be it. Now I remind you, and please hear me in this. So many of the promises we want to cash in on in scripture Come reliant on our obedience. Come reliant on something. It's a cause and effect. Now understand this is not, if we do this, God will act. In essence, it's kind of like this. If I were to say to you, hey, by the way, the super dry store just opened. They're giving away free clothing. I've done my part. And if they, and by the way, they're not. So just when so you know, I'm not advertising it. But uh, and, and you can, now you can go there and get it or not. But it isn't like you went there and went, now, oh, we should decide to do this. They're doing it whether you're there or not. Again, hypothetically. And, and the issue is just whether you choose to go or not by faith. That's the idea. And the reason I say that is, is God already has these things freely available. And he's simply asking, if this is the thing, it'll get you there to get it. That's the idea. So God is not responding to your reaction or my action. To be honest, God is offering, we're supposed to react in faith by doing what he called us to do and say, this is what's waiting for you if you do. For instance, we know that it says the Lord will direct our paths or make them straight. But we don't like the part that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not upon your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And then he'll do that. Hey, it's there waiting. It tells us, by the way, that the peace of God that surpasses our understanding will guard our hearts and minds. But first, he says, I want you meditating on these things. And he gives us a list of eight things in Philippians 4.8. It tells us that we're more than conquerors. And we love that. And yet it says, for those in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. 
And the reason I say that is, is you can actually go and buy plaques that have the payoff without actually the part that's required of you. And that's dangerous. The reason I say that is Solomon has even testified here that he knows what God said. If we're willing to walk with you, if we're willing to do what you say in the simplest sense, follow you and obey you. If we're willing to do that, you will bless us uninterruptedly. And he goes, I know it. So, so be it. And I could see God saying to Solomon, Solomon, so be it. You got your part, right? Your perfect track record of keeping your word, God, makes me confident you always will do so. Solomon saying, you've kept your promises in everything you've set up to this point. You've kept your covenants in everything you've set up to this point. If you said it's going to happen, it's always happened. If you said it was going to happen, it always happened. If you said something was going to come to pass, it's always come to pass. Therefore, because you have a perfect previous track record, your precedent is one of constant and complete total faithfulness. I can trust all the things that have yet to happen that you've said will because you've always kept your word. Then he goes before the altar, spreads out his hands in awe into heaven, and he says, oh, there's no God like you anywhere. All those other guys are, and again, this is loose paraphrase, all those other guys are posers. They're counterfeits. I mean, you keep your covenant. You keep your mercy. Those guys can't because they're not for real. And he goes, not only are you infinitely faithful, you're infinitely huge. I mean, the heaven of heavens can't contain you. You're infinite. So this silly little box that I've built, you know, I mean, it's like cool and it's beautiful and all of that, but there's no possible way it could contain you. So therefore, since we're aware of the fact that this isn't the one place to find God, could it be a resting place for your heart? Can it be a depot for your mercy? And can it be a focal point for your forgiveness? And the whole point of it, we remember, is about his forgiveness. Now, please hear me in that. If you really think the only place you're going to find God is here, then I suggest you never move out. But he's certainly going to go with you everywhere. And if you accepted him, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. And he turns and he says, well, can this place be a focal point for your forgiveness? So therefore, would you hear from heaven your dwelling place? And when you hear forgive, he's asking God, could you please let it be a place of revelation and restoration and refreshment and replenishment and reception and reality and rest? Could you let all of that happen? Please, God. Then he turns and he blesses the people offers peace, grain, and, or peace, burn, and grain offerings in that order. He offers 142,000 animals in sacrifice, sheep and bulls. And then he gives a 14-day feast. If you want to bless the people, feeding them for 14 days, I'm in. Especially when it's, you know, lamb and steaks. And then they all went home. And the chapter ended with the people content with full bellies, resting, and Solomon awaiting God to answer his prayers. It was, God, would you please let it be these? Chapter 9 is God's response to that and more hints about where Solomon is going and how these things are going to start parting ways. Now, some of you are familiar with Second Chronicles 7.14. It is the Chronicles recording of other part that God has said, but it's in the sen- essence the same thing where he says, if my people were called by my name, would humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will turn and I will hear and I will heal 
their sin. I'm sorry, I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Lots of sort of federally minded or nationalist minded individuals who are seeking the Lord like to claim those verses. And again, they like the last part. Oh God, heal our land. He goes, all right, well, if my people notice, he doesn't say if the world, he doesn't say if the populace, he says my people, God speaking. It's the problem with the world. People are going, you know, it's a global warming. I'm like, to be honest, it's actually Christian cooling is the problem. Global warming is like somehow, you know, we think we've shattered the ozone and the world's going to burn up. And by the way, it is, you know, Second Peter, you can read it for yourself. It is going to all blow up on us. I do believe in the Big Bang. You just put it on the wrong side. I don't believe it in the beginning. It's going to happen at the end. That's what he tells us. The whole thing's going to explode and everything's, even the elements are going to melt. But that again, that's to come. But we won't, you know, by that point, it really won't matter to us. It'll be, we'll be impervious to that. But in that... He does say, look at if my people who are called by my name, everybody out there on the world is not called by God's name. Who's called by God's name? Christians. It's in what we call ourselves. If my people would humble themselves, that tells me where my problem is. It's pride. And pray, because I'm too busy trying to do it myself instead of actually seek the Lord. Turn from their wicked ways, actually repent. If that's what we would really be willing to do, seek God's face and pray. This is, I do all you ask, Solomon. I would turn, I'd listen, I'd hear with my heart, I'd forgive you, and I would heal your land. I'm not I saying. If Christians would stop being lukewarm, this world's going to be a better place for everyone. They just don't know that yet. So he's waited. Here, back in our text, Solomon's waiting for an answer from God, and it tells us then in verse 1, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired that he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. One thing's for sure, this is clearly at least 13 years after Solomon built the Lord's house, because he tells us there, after the finishing of both of them, he did this for what it's worth. Um, and it says that the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayers and your supplication that you've made before me. You wanted this house to be unique? It is. I have consecrated this house, which I have built to put my name there forever. God, I remind you, it appeared to Solomon before in First Kings three fifteen. Well, actually, First Kings three fifteen says Solomon's response, where Solomon God says, "What would you like, Solomon?" And interestingly enough, Solomon had just given a rather substantial sacrifice at Gibeon at the time for what it's worth. It tells us he offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar, and God responds by saying, "Solomon, what is it you're really looking for?" And even there, God says, well, if you're willing to walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments, just like you asked, I'll give you everything you're looking for. Again, not like, let's face it, if we're willing to do that, we're not going to be asking for the Bentley in the house in Chelsea. So the Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and your supplication you've made before me. I've consecrated this house in which I have built to put my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Let me, perpetually. Let me say that again. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Do you see that there in verse 3? Can you all? Not if you actually see that in your verse. Verse 3. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. 
Okay, and there are some nodding, but not an awful. Okay, did you guys find that right? Okay, not if you're still breathing. Okay, some of you still aren't breathing. Okay, we need to check on that. Why is this? Why am I pointing this out so irritatingly? This is why the wailing wall is so important to the Jews today. Do you know how many times the word Jerusalem appears in the Quran? Zero. Not a single time does it appear there. Do you know how many times the word Jerusalem appears in the Bible? Well, it depends on your version, but that's in over 600 times. I think that kind of puts things into perspective. But there's this rumor that Muhammad sort of ascended with his horse from the top of that hill, which is a little strange only because people go to do their hajj and they visit his tomb. So I'm not really sure how he actually ascended, but there's still a tomb to visit. Uh, anyways, uh, that's not empty like ours. Anyways, but I'd like you to consider the fact that to the Jews, they read this verse and they take it seriously. Why are they praying at a wall? They're praying at a wall because God said that on that hill, his eyes would be there perpetually. Why are they crying out to him? Why is it the wailing wall where they're pouring forth their heart? Because his heart would be there perpetually. He's told us that in this verse. Now, in your handouts, you will actually see um, four pictures. Can you see those four pictures? I just wanted to point out, by the way, what the wailing wall is in its simplicity. So the, can you find the picture where there is the Temple Mount right now with Al-Aqsa Mosque? Can you see that? should be the first picture, maybe, on the top. Is that right? Then there's the temple proper, right? Then you actually see the temple that would have been there during Jesus' day. Actually, I'm sorry. The first picture would actually be a bunch of guys at a wailing wall, wouldn't it? Yeah, see, I have to remember this because I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I want you to see, right? I want you to see how big that wailing wall is and compared to people. You can see the people in that picture, right? So needless to say, it's quite substantial. Do you know why, by the way, they actually have barbed wire at the top of it? Because above it is where the area is for the mosque and the shrine of Omar. And the Muslims that were going there to, to worship were actually dumping things over on the men, on the Jewish men, as they were crying at the wailing wall. So they're like, well, we really can't do that. We have to put a wall to guard our wall. If you get that. Now, you can see how big that is, right? Now, if you look at the model of the temple back in Jesus' day, do you see that little part that marks where the wailing wall is? Can you see how that little part there is actually, it's not a wall of the temple. It's not even a wall of anything that's set above it. It was the retaining wall, the stuff that helps hold up dirt, if you will on the side. And obviously it's not even all of it. It's actually about a sixth of that wall in regards to its height. Do you see that? Do you get an idea? Now, if you were to see the Al-Aqsa Mosque, by the way, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a little black thing in the corner up on the Temple Mount. By the way, do you know that the Waqf and the other people who were actually up there, the Muslim antiquities people, they actually say there was never a temple up there. It just coincidentally was a flat, you know, a flattened mountain with that was paved. Well, where did that come from? I don't know. It's just, random road people. But uh, the reason I say that is if you compared that shrine of Omar to the temple that sat there, you would be comparing a lemon to a basketball to give you an idea. 
And at least those are two things I'm familiar with to help you understand. And by the way, what's there right now is the lemon. Uh, and you need to know that was about built after the Al-Aqsa. And the reason I say that is, is this is, and again, I'm not trying to go after another religion, but I do need to make clear as Christians, we need to, you need to recognize that is not the same God. By no means is that the same God. And that guy that, that leads that, anyone who becomes like him is going to be somebody that is, I mean, you, the, the best, the closest thing to, a, to, the, uh, to the reality of a religion should be a person who becomes a lot like its leader. I mean, if we want to become like Jesus, we're going to become like people who are going to love and forgive. I mean, if we really want to become like Jesus, we're going to be raising dead and healing sick, and we're going to be forgiving everyone while they torture us to death. That's pretty radically different than a guy who went and just went ballistic and started killing everyone who disagreed with him. Those are very, I mean, that's about as opposite as you can get. So might I say, dare, might I dare say that the worst Christian's liberal, if that makes sense, in the sense that they're the least like Jesus. But the Muslim will be the most liberal because they'll be the least like their leader for what it's worth. It's food for thought. Hopefully it doesn't get me kicked out of the country. So, but I have to be honest. I have to tell you this and understand that when God says my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually, he's going to tell us what happens if they don't walk with them. But please hear me in this. They're, they're expecting that. They're expecting God's eyes and his heart to be there. And if his eyes and his heart are there, even though they're praying to a wall that held up gravel, if you will, and, and rock, that held up the floor, that held up the temple, it's still at least the same area. And they'll say, you know, remember we said, if we turn our heart to you and we turn towards this place, well, you can't get more towards the place than putting your face to the wall because, you know, on the other side of that wall was that back in its day until 70 A.D., so I, again, and the reason I say that is there is a bit of compassion. I'll be honest, there is a bit of compassion for anyone who's just completely deceived. For a person who actually believes that the only way they could possibly be confident that they could be eternally secure is to die in a holy war. I mean, let's face it, if I believe that with all my heart, I'd take me and my kids, start a holy war and kill all of us in it. It would only make sense. But I don't believe that. But I, my heart breaks for anyone who genuinely believes that. I believe that my God died enough for everyone. And he hung on a cross for every man's sins. And I believe God does not only have one son, but he has many. Only one is begotten. In other words, only one's from his gene pool. The rest of us are born into him. And that is important to recognize because our Messiah lived on his father. He sought his father and only did what his father told him. Interesting. Because Jesus was never a dad on earth to abandon his children. But I challenge you, there was another man who was, who would make claim that God was not a father. And I would understand because the guy didn't know how to be one himself. Well, I think I've gone after that quite hard. But I want you to recognize that God says, I'm not going to take my eyes and my heart off of this as long as, verse 4, if you walk... Now, the word now then allows the Jews to believe in in their disobedience. God never changed that, even though you can decide for yourself. Now, if you walk, yilach, it just means to follow. Before me, as your father David did, in integrity. The word integrity, here's a word for you. Here's some Hebrew, ready? Tom, try that, tom. There's two good words to know, tom and tov. Tov means good. So uh, you like it? Tov, it's good. Tom means complete, to the end, to the proper. 
Well, the reason I say that is when he says integrity of heart, what that means is with all of your heart. Does that make sense? To the very end of your heart. Because the completeness or fullness of your heart. If you will follow me like your dad did with all of his heart, and you're like, well, wait a minute, David made a lot of mistakes. He did some really stupid and horrible things. And I'd say, I agree. But you know what happened is he got back up and he kept following. And aren't you encouraged by that? I am. With integrity of heart and an uprightness to do according to all that I've commanded you. And if you keep, this is an important word for a guy who should be here to hear this. The word is shamar. Shamar means to guard. If you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish. This is an important word because the word is kum. Try that word, kum. Kind of like the easy way to remember it is like kumbaya. Kum and kum, by the way, means to rise up or to stand up. We would use it in regards to Jesus rising up from the grave. But the idea is when something is risen up, it's established or it's strong. And he says, I will raise up the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. That's the word established here. As I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. He goes, hey, you quoted it. Good job, Solomon. But I want to remind you, you need to walk in integrity and do and keep as I, saw, as I told you to. And if you're willing to do that, the establishment's already there waiting for you. I'm just waiting for your obedience to allow it to happen in your life. Now, verse 6, but if you or your sons, you need to recognize, Solomon, you're not going to be here forever. If you are or your sons at all, turn from following me. Do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. And you kind of know it's not going to get pretty. But let me just encourage you to, to take a look at this because there is a pattern, there is a uh, there is a whole system here of a down that you may not even see. Look at it. The first thing is they turn away. The word, by the way, is here's a fun word: shub. Try that one: shub. Shub like shubi dooby dooby dooby. Shub means to return, retreat is what it means. He goes, look at if you or any of your sons decide that what you had to do is retreat from me instead, turn away from me. Second, not keep my commands or statutes. That word shamar. You stop guarding my word. Then you go after other gods. The word is halak. It just means to walk. Then you serve. That's a vad. That means to literally be enslaved by choice. In other words, you choose to be someone's slave. And then you wind up worshiping them. Now, let me say that again. Listen, this is how it works. You're following God. And God goes, okay, I want to warn you. Now, I remind you, he's speaking to Solomon here because this is pretty much going to be the rest of the time of Solomon's life now. First of all, it's going to start with this. You start to retreat. You kind of give a little bit of distance between you and God. Same thing happened with Peter. If you remember, Peter didn't just sort of, he was walking really close to Jesus and they turned said, I don't know him while he's standing next to him. The first thing he did is he followed at a distance. You start distancing yourself from fellowship, from godly counsel that will actually, you know, the person will actually tell you the truth about where you're at with your walk versus, oh, praise the Lord. You're still calling yourself a Christian and still wearing a cross. You must be great. He's like, look at, I don't want you starting to back off and turn away. That's how it starts. Now, what we do during that time is our conscience, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, hey, 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 you're a little too far away for comfort. This is not good for you. And you and I both know that. And you're like, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm just giving a little breather. I'm giving a little bit of time. Then the second thing is the word shamar, I remind you, means to guard. You stop guarding God's word. So what happens is the Holy Spirit starts reminding you, hey, now you start doing things that are actually just, maybe, maybe you were kind of 
dwelling in the grave for a moment, but now you know something's wrong and you're doing it. And he goes, oh, it's not really wrong. And the Holy Spirit's going, yes, it is. And you're going, no, no, no. And then you bend Scripture to somehow make what you're doing right, even though you know it's not. And you know how that is? Because at the beginning, you're like, you know, this doesn't feel right. This isn't right. I shouldn't be doing this. And you can't do it and walk in really good fellowship with your brothers and sisters, stay in a place of really comfortable fellowship at church, and stay in a place where obviously, most importantly, you're tight with Jesus. Now, you could show up and not show up. You know what I mean? Prayerfully, that's not you tonight. You know, we sort of show up and you're just kind of a shell, but really your mind's kind of out there somewhere else right now. Well, he's going, look at You start by turning away. You distance yourself. Then you stop protecting my word. And you know what happens when you stop protecting my word? You know why you do that? Because you really want to give yourself opening to start following other gods. Now, those gods may be gods of, of sex or power or money or whatever, but in the end of it all, you know these are things directly in competition with the God that you claim to love with all your heart and soul. Remember, that's what he says, is I want all of your heart in this thing, bro. Well, maybe not bro, but maybe, you know. And I get the idea. Put it in this way. Some guy, he marries this beautiful woman, they have this amazing relationship. He's walking tight with Jesus, so forth. And all of a sudden, he starts distancing himself from his wife. Now, any one of us in this room would look and go, mm, this, there's something kind of not right about that. This is not a good direction. And as he stops doing that, he stops protecting the covenant that he made with him, with her. Now, at that point, then he starts walking. Now, look, at, he isn't necessarily walking. Now, it says walking after. Get the idea here that the idea is not like you're just going to go and grab it. You're just going to put yourself in a place where it's convenient to fall. So now, all of a sudden, the same guy that had this amazing relationship with this amazing, beautiful, godly woman, and they were really, they were praying, they were reading together, they were having this amazing time. Now he's distancing himself. As he distanced himself, he starts, you know, he starts telling himself those lies, like, oh, I could go to that singles bar. I'm not going to get in trouble there. And I could go to that place where I know I used to meet girls. I mean, after all, that's, you know, not not like I'm going to do that. And then ultimately, he gets to that place. And then what's next? Then he volunteers to become a slave. And the next thing you know, he's trapped and he feels trapped. And then he just lives this life of worshiping something else. Now, you see the progress, right? Or the digression, if you will. And the reason he says it is God goes, this is what's going to, it's going to be one or the other. You're either going to follow me with all your heart, Solomon, and your sons, or this is what's going to happen. Then verse seven, this is the result. I will cut off Israel from the land in which I've given them. And this house, which I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. As for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished, and they will hiss. Can you imagine someone walking by going, hiss? Well, you know, we might say they would boo and say, why has God done thus to this land and to this house? And they'll answer, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiped them and served them. In other words, it seems like the world seems to know what when we screw up like that more than we do. We can lie to ourselves in the world. You ever, I mean, you ever know anyone, because I'm sure it's never happened to you, nor it ever will. You ever hear of stories where a person was trying, a Christian was trying to backslide, they were trying to do that, and they were rebuked by the world? You know, someone sitting next to them in a pub or something, and they're like, dude, you need to sober up and go back to church. God can use anyone. If he can use a donkey, he can use a drunk. Well, therefore, 
The Lord has brought all this calamity. Now look, understand, my disobedience, first of all, affects me first, get cut off from the land. Then it affects God's house, cast out of his sight. And God's house will move from a place of witness to a place of warning. And I remind you, you're the temple of the living God. You want to go and start opening your options to follow a little bit of Jesus, but a little bit of stupidity? You know what's going to happen? You're going to find your life in such a mess that when people go, do what happened to you? You'll be able to say, I don't know. And they'll go, I do. You were, you know, you were really cool and you were nice and you were kind when you were following Jesus. I mean, I thought you were a nutter, but at least you were a nice nutter. Now you're like a dangerous, horrible disease thing that seems to be spreading everywhere you go. And he goes, you know, I think the difference is you need to go back to church, man. You need to go find that God or something because you're clearly a different person. And he goes, you know what? That you're either going to be a witness or a warning. Now what happened at the end of 20 years? Notice why 20 years? Can anyone tell me why 20 years? What's that? Excellent. Nice job. Right? Yeah, because he built this house and, and built a temple, seven, and then his house, 13. That's 20 years. So that's how I know that they're in succession. When Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, we're beginning to see now the digression of Solomon. I remind you, God's like, here's the digression, Solomon. You're going to distance yourself. And as you distance yourself, you're going to start checking your options and lying and positioning yourself to fall. And you're going to, and then, you know, you start opening those doors. It's kind of like you're in a submarine. Opening a door is a terrible idea. You're in a plane and you're like a little bit of air would be nice. But when you open it up, things get really bad. You need to understand sin is like that. And you're like, I feel sheltered. Yeah, shelter is good. Ask a homeless guy if shelter is a good idea when a storm comes. So the rest of this chapter, by the way, and it goes quick here starts to show something really, really bizarre. I mean, we're now more than halfway through Solomon's reign. And the first thing we start to see now is at the end of all of that, he goes and he gives a gift to Hiram. Now, Hiram, I remind you, helped helped, uh, Solomon build a house of the Lord. He also gave some lumber, uh, because that seems to be the thing he has an awful lot of. Um, He gave some lumber for his own house as well. But now it's 20 years since they started that whole thing. And now Solomon's going to give him a gift. You know, in other words, some people give you like a thank you card. Solomon gave him like 20 cities. You know, someone will give you a two pound card or someone will say, here, by the way, why don't you take Little Snoring and Chesterton and something with a Dale? And well, that's the idea. So it says, here I'm the king of Tyre. It supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress logs as much as he desired. And king Solomon gave the 20 cities in the land of Galilee. I remind you, this is where Jesus is going to walk. Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities. He's north of there. And he went to see the cities that Solomon had given him, and they didn't please him. The word please is the word yeshar, and that's the one that wasn't agreeable with him. And he said, what kind of cities are these in which you've given me, my brother? And he called them Kabul, which I find really interesting because it's the capital, actually, of Afghanistan. It's called Kabul, but I'm sure it must mean something else. But it, interestingly enough, it doesn't mean gross or yucky or bad. It means bound. Now, why does he call them bound? Because he feels in this weird place where he doesn't want them, but they've been offered to him as a gift. I think it's really interesting because hear this, because you can miss it. Something was offered to him. That's going to be an amazingly, by the way, if you get a chance to walk Galilee with me, 
or by even by yourself, I highly recommend it. It is an unbelievably beautiful. It's my, it's to be honest, my favorite quiet place in the world. You can um, hear. I mean, it's the only place I get up before the sun rises every day, and I get so quiet you can hear the wind under a mud duck when it flaps. True story, Bruno, because I know he's been there. I mean, it's been amazing. You know, it's like there's something astounding about that. But something beautiful was offered to him. And by the way, it wasn't just beautiful. It was a very, very key thoroughfare between the north and the south. Everyone's going to go that way. Ultimately, sooner or later, that way is going to be the way that's going to be the most important for him. And he was offered this beautiful gift. And he looked at it and said, I feel like I'm bound to take it, but I'm really not going to. I'm going to instead embarrass myself and just refuse this beautiful gift. Why is that important? Why does he put it here? Because don't you realize that's exactly what's happening in the heart of Solomon? God says, I'm offering you this amazing thing. I'm going to bless you and bless you and bless you. Just please follow me. Just please obey me. I know what I'm talking about. And you've got to trust me in this. Follow me. And he's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. But in the end of it all, he kind of looked at God's gift and he went, kaboom. I'm bound, I think, to do so. And by the way, Solomon, in, in fairness, Solomon is the son of the greatest king that existed before him. I mean, there were two, and David was better. It's pretty safe. Except, of course, the living God, nobody's going to compare to him. And this happens a lot with kids who are raised in a decent Christian home. Where they get to this point where this beautiful gift is offered them, this place of tremendous fruitfulness, this beautiful way of peace, and they go, mm, I'm bound to take it, but I'm going to say no. Not right now. This isn't worth it for me. And as a result of that, it's going to get really bad for Solomon. But we see it happen even here in a, in a sort of a, a hinted way, if you will. So Hiram, by the way, he actually sends gold. He sends 120 talents of gold. And this is the reason for the labor force which Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Mildol, the wall of Jerusalem, Hatzor and Megiddo, these are different cities, by the way. Megiddo is going to be really important because Megiddo will wind up, um, you know, you build upon, you build upon, and build upon, it comes to a hill. And the Hebrew word for hill is Har. And the place where it is the hill of Megiddo is Har Megiddo, and that's where we get the word Armageddon from because the valley that's right underneath that, the valley of Jezreel, is where that battle is going to be fought. So it's kind of good to know. Verse 16 says, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gizar, burned it with fire, killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city and gave it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. Now, in other words, Solomon was going to marry the Pharaoh's daughter, even though he was told not to do that in the book of Deuteronomy. Don't marry foreign wives, not because God doesn't like interracial relationships. The whole point was they have other gods and the moment you open your heart to them in romance, they're going to sway you into their gods, which is exactly going to be the downfall. Don't miss the order in this. God laid, I mean, he answers Solomon's prayer with, I would love to do that, Solomon. You want me to forgive? You want me to bless? You want me to restore and refresh? I would love to do that. And you prom, you want, you, you claimed it because I made that promise to you that if we walked, if you guys walked, I would bless you. I would love to bless you. I would love to make your life amazing. I would love it to be this awesome thing. So Solomon, do so, please. Follow me. <clears throat> give me your heart. Give me your heart, Solomon. Give me your heart. Then what do we have? Two situations. A beautiful gift offered to a guy that goes, well, I'm bound to take it, but 
Now imagine if it's a beautiful gift and they have your heart, you're like, dude, I'll just take it. It's Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't even have to understand how good this is, but I'll gladly take it. But he doesn't. But he still gives them something in return. Did you notice? Hiram goes here, we'll take some money anyways. Then the other thing we have is Solomon offering his heart to a, to a girl who worships another god to keep peace between two places. And what does the king do of that other place? He kills a bunch of people, takes their city and says, oh, by the way, to sweeten the deal, you not only get my daughter, but you get this city as well. It's interesting because David's, I'm sorry, Solomon's downfall is going to be offering his heart. Some what we're going to read is that he loved a lot of foreign women who worshiped a lot of foreign gods and they swayed his heart from following the Lord. Do you see how God put all that in order in front of us for us to see? Let me ask you. Don't answer me now because I know you, you know what the answer should be. But do you really see the good things of God as the gift that they really are? The beautiful gift of peace? Or are you taking them now out of duty? Because that's a very big difference, isn't it? So this is what did Solomon do in those places? He built on them. He built up Gezer, Bethran, Baalach, Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah, verse 19. And all the storage cities that Solomon built. Do you know what he did with them? Because God was blessing me. He used them to store stuff. Study, use it. Remember how God gives you abundance to go and bless other people with? Oh no, he took the abundance and just started storing it up. The cities that Solomon built, cities for his chariots, cities for his cavalry, not Calvary, two very different things, of course. And whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and all of the land of his dominion. Last couple of verses. All the people who were left, by the way, these were people who were supposed to be driven out. Now what you start to see is he starts letting in. You know, instead of kind of going, okay, you don't belong here. He's like, well, you might not belong here, but I'm going to try to make you work for me anyways. It's the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel. That is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, who the children of Israel had not been able to completely destroy. These, from these, Solomon raised up forced labor as it is to this day. It will be, for what it's worth, one of five times we'll read as it is to this day in First Kings. You know, people tell you, well, the Bible's written by a bunch of bored Jewish guys, you know, hundreds of, you know, hundreds of years later, how could it possibly be true history? They're saying, whoever's writing this down, clearly is writing it down and going, hey, this not only just happened, you can still see it today. Doesn't sound like something handed out a thousand years later. But the children of Israel, Solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war and his servants, his officers, captains, commanders, his chariots and his cavalry. Remember, not cal Calvary, but cal Calvary. That's not easy. Others were chiefs of the officials. In other words, he took those people that were God's people, if you will, and he raised them up to be bosses who were over Solomon's work. 550, to be exact, who ruled over the people who did the work. Pharaoh's daughter, by the way, came up from the city of David to her house. Remember, he built her one. Solomon had built for her, and then he built the millo. Now, three times a year, Solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense on them, uh, with them on the altar that was before the Lord, and he finished the temple. Now, what this tells us is, even though you keep, I mean, remember, three times a year, a Jewish man was, re was required to go for the feasts. This tells us he was still, in essence, how do I apply that to my life? Like, he's still showing up at church every Sunday, if you will. And even though he's still showing up at church every Sunday, he's completely 
already stepping into a backslide and we don't see it because he's going to church every Sunday. So why would we think he's backslidden? You can see what God's trying to tell us in that. Just showing up. And I remind you, is church a gift or is it a duty? Is praying a gift or is it a duty? Is being in his word a gift or is it a duty? Is it in essence God's grace or is it Kabul? Because it's really going to be one or the other, right? No. Solomon built a fleet of ships, and that's in Giver, which is in Elat. By the way, do you know what Elat is today? Elat today is called Elat. Yeah, yeah, you got that, right? Um, if you look at Israel, it's kind of like a pointed tip at the bottom of it, and it's literally at that tip. It actually then is the one beautiful, and by the way, it's one of the most beautiful places. It's like, that's the place to go to a beach. Let's go there, guys. Uh, let's just go there for a few days and just, just pray. Uh it's the place that then butts into the Red Sea. So you actually, if you go scuba diving there or even uh, even snorkeling, it's like swimming in an aquarium. Unbelievably cool fish there of all kinds. Been there. It's a great place. Uh, which is near Latin, the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Uh, then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew how to see. Now Solomon built ships, but guess what Solomon didn't have? Sailors. That's a little weird, don't you think? That's like this one of those places, if I build it, they will come. Hmm. Isn't that what happens in Christianity when we're not careful? We just get the idea, well, we just let's build a church and see if people show up. You know, maybe someday that person will get saved and the Lord's like, I want to send you out into that field because the fields are ripe for harvest. You may be looking in the wrong field, but their fields are ripe for harvest. I just need more laborers. Solomon builds this great this great fleet of ships and then he's like, oh, I think I'm missing something. Oh, sailors. Well, he goes back to Hiram. Remember Hiram? That was the guy he gave those the 20 cities in Galilee. And the guy goes like, oh, uh, thanks for those. you know. And he's like, so now understand, even after that weirdness, he's still asking for a favor from Hiram. Did you notice that? It says Hiram sent his servants with the fleets. Hiram actually seems to be more forthright than Solomon at this point. And it says, you know, hey, take some of my sailors. And they went to Ophir, now, you may not know about Ophir, but Ophir, by the way, is known for its gold. And it's gold so pure you can see through it. Now, I don't know what kind of gold that is. But imagine, you know, guys go, no, honey, this is the purest gold. It's like, no, it's glass. No, it's actually pure gold. Well, that's the idea. They acquired 420 talents of gold for there, by the way. If it's really the gold of Ophir like it should be here, you could pay the national debts of both the UK and America with it. That's how valuable that would be today. And they brought it to King Solomon. What do we have at the end of this? God offered this tremendous gift to Solomon. If he was just willing to follow him, he goes, please, this is, I want you to know, this is the downward spiral. This is what it looks like, Solomon, so you can catch it before you're there. This is what it starts with. You know, you start by just distancing yourself. And then once you distance yourself, you start, you know, inching your way more towards things that make it really easy to sin. And you lie to your conscience and you stop guarding my word. And then you inch and inch and inch and you put yourself in the place to fall. And then you just, then you, you, then you hand yourself over to be a slave. Now all of a sudden you're a drunkard. Now all of a sudden you're a floozy. Now you're a, you're a something that you weren't. Because now you hand, and here's the weird part. You actually said, cuff me, cuff me. And God's like, I didn't create you to, for that to, to be your life. Because Solomon, know that. This is the gift I'm offering you. And then you see here I'm going, well, thanks for the gift, but 
right? And then you go, and then you see Solomon go, and the next thing you see Solomon going, oh yeah, that girl from, that's right, my wife, you know, from Egypt. Let's just bring her in. I mean, of all the places God told us to be aware of, Egypt was actually the first on the list because that's where we came from. You know, it's like, look at, you remember all the gods that were there. Didn't you see Prince of Egypt? They had those cool songs and you remember all that. It's like, you should be reminded of this. This is the reason we celebrate Passover. Is to say, thanks God we didn't go to Egypt. And imagine how weird it would be to be sitting there in Passover with your Egyptian wife going, God, thank us to get us out of Egypt. Oh, sorry, honey. I mean, how weird would that be? You know, and it's like, and then when you get by the end of it all, he's like, hey, let's go get some gold. Now, I remind you, by this point, silver was so common, it became like rocks. So he's like, yeah, gold. But you know what? I, I have a lot of gold, but I don't have a lot of that really clear gold. Let's get that. And it just doesn't satisfy. And by the time you're done, what do you got? You got Solomon with this girl in his house from a place he's supposed to have left behind. Let me say it this way. He brought a girl in from his past. Does that make any sense? He's like, you should know better than that, Solomon. Of all the places, I mean, there's lots of places that a girl from that's not a good idea. That's the worst of them. You can't disobey more clearly than that. And you know, there's certain places where you're like, yeah, that's iffy, bad, but iffy. But that's just bad. That's just bad. There's no way I can make that choice and really lie to myself, honestly. Like, there's such a thing, you know. And he's like, well, you know, well, let's go. Oh, I've got my ships. Oh, I better call that friend of mine, you know. And oh, can I have some sailors? And imagine, I, 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 they all kind of come down. They go and they come back with this gold. And now what does Solomon have? He has more gold that he can't spend. And is there any part of you that goes, oh, it's kind of weird. This shouldn't be this way. Yeah, let me, can I just say this, please? Because now we're about to pray and we're right on time. When you turn from the Lord, you're going to get desperate. And when you get desperate, you're going to start chasing after all kinds of things. Some of the things you used to chase after and you hated it before you were saved. If you turn from the Lord, I want you to get that image in your face of you going, cuff me, please. Will you just please tie me up? Because that's what you're doing when you chase after that stuff. And what we don't see or I should say what Solomon doesn't see, but we can start seeing from the outside, is that's what Solomon's doing right now. Is his heart starting to veer from the Lord? He's starting to veer towards a gal from a place he shouldn't be shopping at, so to speak, to starting to chase after gold, though he has more gold than he can spend already. He's in a, he's in a dangerous place, and when this starts to happen, sooner or later, you know, to keep inching towards the cliff, falling is the easy part. Inching to it is where all the resistance comes. And Solomon's going to fall so hard that it's going to be like, this is insanity at a hurricane level. Please, please, please don't let that be you. And right now, I imagine every one of you agree with me. I agree with me. And yet, every one of us is capable of this. To be honest, built within our faulty system, not the part God did, the part we programmed, is this. That's why God has to kill this guy. And here's the good news. That's the whole point of the cross. He took that guy and nailed him to a cross and then buried him 
So he never has to rise up again. But the person who rises up is a whole new person that no longer has to walk around with this old guy. And if that's the case, why would you want to drag that old, nasty, dead thing anymore now that it's dead? So as we go to prayer, that's my prayer for you and that's my prayer for me. God, slay this kind of Solomon out of me who is comforted, rich, bloated, He's still going to be able, remember he prayed for wisdom, he's still going to be able to be wise. We're going to see next week, people are going to come to him for his wisdom and they're going to be blown away. And here's the danger, is you can still sit on the gifts God's given you and still be walking away from them at the same time and you wouldn't even know it because, let's face it, still, things are still kind of happening. But God wants so much more. He wants your heart, all of it. And I think we should... Well, I don't just think, I know we should be giving it to him tonight. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. And the warnings that are rife throughout it, interlaced and woven through this thing, like one beautiful tapestry of warning. And we can miss it because we just get so excited about the fact that there was this beautiful moment where you responded and said, Solomon, my eyes and my heart, they will be here perpetually. Now, because they are. Follow me, please. I recognize if your eyes are on us perpetually, then there's nothing we can do you don't see. We're all, I think, intrinsically we're all aware of that. However, if your heart is constantly there as well. That means that it can be hurt and grieved at our disobedience. And my prayer, God, for every one of us, me included, is that we wouldn't do anything that hurts your heart. Oh God, but tonight instead, we'd give you all of ours. And as we give you all of ours, Lord, you would be pleased. We wouldn't look at this great gifts, these great gifts you offer us, the 20 cities, of everything from beautiful fellowship to beautiful your beautiful word to your Holy Spirit to times in prayer. That we wouldn't take any of these blessings of our Christian walk and somehow assume they're just binding things, duties. But rather, God, even tonight, even tonight we would recognize the gift they are. And our heart would not be wandering to places that we are we just know if we were honest, could never satisfy. So we turn to you now and we ask God, please, out of your mercy and grace, forgive us for the, the idiot we can be. Please, God, slay this Solomon, this kind of Solomon in us and raise up somebody that has more of the heart of David in his most obedient moments to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then to love one another as you would call us to, as ourselves. Jesus, we do know that you died on the cross to pay for all of this. We know that you buried, you were buried, and we could be reminded from that, that the old of us is gone. So why should we ever shop in the past for those things, but rather... Jesus, as you were raised from the dead, we can live in the newness of it. And you've told us that that choice is one of simply proclaiming you Lord and Savior. And we don't do it every time because we feel like we have to keep doing it to stay saved. 
But we do it because we just want you to know that we still have the same heart that we do the first time we said yes to say yes. And just in case there be anyone else out there that somehow would still want to say yes and is never, oh God, we just say today yes. We say yes to that gift on the cross, but also to that new life you offer us on the other side to leave that old man behind. So now let us walk in that, we pray, as we commit ourselves to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.